0: Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world.
1: I'm a prophet, I'm the Resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead.
0: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Some people are on the bench. they think it's all over. It is now
0: Liverpool legend tells the story of a young 18-year-old lad by the name of Raymond Jones. The story goes that on Saturday the 18th of October 1961, Jones walked into the Whitechapel branch of NEMS, the Liverpool music store, and asked for a copy of My Bonnie by a group called The Beatles. The manager behind the counter at the time was Brian Epstein, and he prided himself on the fact that any record could be ordered. Unable to track down any trace of the record at the time, coupled with two further requests for it that afternoon, prompted Epstein to investigate further. An investigation that would lead him to the Cavern Club, a meeting with John, Paul, George and Pete. I say legend because there's dispute as to whether or not Raymond Jones actually existed. But when it comes to telling the story of the biggest band in the world, and in particular the man who had the courage and the vision to make them bigger than Elvis himself, I personally prefer the legend. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of Brian Epstein.
1: Brian Epstein, the man who built the Beatles into a cult, is now as well known as they are, and next week his book uh, called A Cellar Full of Noise. Is published. And uh, I was immediately struck by their, their, their music, their beat and uh, their sense of humor actually on stage. Brian was a, a beautiful guy, Brian Epstein, and he was a, an intuitive theatrical guy and he knew we had something presented as well. I never thought they would be anything less than the greatest stars in the world. I have prepared a statement, which I will read, which has had John Lennon's absolute approval this afternoon uh, with myself by telephone. I think they're going to be successful in my estimation a lot of other people's estimation for many many years but uh obviously it won't be the same kind of success it's obviously going to what we well, have matured kind of success but he was just a beautiful fella you know and it's terrible what are your plans now well we haven't made any i mean it's only just we only just heard
0: If anyone was the first people, it was Brian. Brian Samuel Epstein was born in Liverpool on September 19, 1934, the first son of Harry and Queenie Epstein. Brian's parents both came from successful furniture retailing and manufacturing backgrounds and it would be safe to say that Brian's middle class Jewish upbringing was more than comfortable. And in a city that was marred by a very high unemployment rate, the Epsteins were considered to be reasonably well off. Brian's only brother Clive was born just under two years later, and from an early age it became apparent that Clive was the more organised of the two. Brian would struggle to get out of bed in the morning whereas Clive would be up and ready. Clive would be the neat dressed of the two, something that many would find remarkable considering Brian's immaculate appearance and attention to detail in his later years. During the war, the Epsteins evacuated first to North Wales and then to Southport, while the Luftwaffe did their utmost best to flatten Liverpool with their almost nightly bombing raids. What with the disruption of the war years, evacuation, and the anti-Semitic culture of some educational establishments, Brian would go on to attend no less than nine schools. But it would be at Beaconsfield, the Jewish school in Sussex, where Brian, joined by his brother, would begin to settle down and would excel at art and drama. Brian's educational years finished at Rickin, where it was here that he fine-tuned his passion and prowess with a remarkable talent in oils and watercolours, as well as producing the school play. One particular area of interest to Brian that he wished to pursue was that of dress designing. But to his father Harry, as with most successful Jewish families at the time, his son would not be given the chance to assert himself, and he of course would be expected to be part of the family business. And so, in September 1950, just one week shy of his 16th birthday, Brian reluctantly began work at I. Epstein and Sons in Wharton Road, the furniture store that was run by his grandfather Isaac and his father Harry. Brian soon proved himself to be a natural salesman, and as well as sales duties he made use of his artistic talents by reorganising the window displays into something more appealing to potential customers. Isaac, Brian's grandfather, possessed an old-fashioned retail sense that was built on solid sales, and he had no time for this extravagant upheaval. And so, in 1952, in order to head off any potential clash among the three generations of Epstein's, Harry sent Brian on a six-month apprenticeship at Times Furnishing. This was just the impetus that Brian needed. It was here that he began to flourish and made a great impression on his bosses, He was immaculately turned out with an active social life and became a well-off and elegant 18-year-old who shopped at the best tailors in town and was popular with the girls. Brian's newfound success and popularity was suddenly halted by national service and after being rejected for his first choice of the RAF, he found himself conscripted into the army. Army life for Private 22739590 Epstein was not an enjoyable experience. He felt the officer exams and was deeply resentful of the regimentation imposed upon him. Eventually, after only ten months, Brian was discharged after undergoing various physical and psychiatric tests and he was deemed emotionally and mentally unfit for continued service. Brian's father, Harry, had opened an annex to the furniture store. This was the North End Music Store and was better known as NEMS. Here, he did a brisk trade in pianos and sheet music, and following his son's discharge from the army, he decided that he'd put Brian's passion for and knowledge of classical music to good use by introducing the sale of records. Brian soon settled back into the swing of retail life and things were working out well. It was about this time that Brian decided to confront his family and tell them of the deep dark secret that had been disturbing him intensely for several years now. Brian had been leading a concealed life as a homosexual, and one Friday evening after dinner with the family, he revealed all. Brian's mother, Queenie, would recall that although it being a shock at the time, deep down she already knew. And it would be Queenie that Brian would turn to when needing to talk about the inner chaos that he would go through over the years. Brian's interest in the family business would begin to decline. He would find himself regularly visiting the Liverpool Playhouse and would make friends with several of the actors and the performers there. Despite his incomparable accomplishments as a furniture and music retailer, boredom began to set in and Brian was becoming restless. What followed was an addiction to the theatre, performing arts and the people involved in it. An addiction that never really left him. Brian left the family business briefly and passed the auditions to become a pupil at RADA in London. But this was short-lived, and as Brian put it, although I needed some creative outlet, I realised this wasn't it. I was already too much of a businessman to be acting like a student in a duffel coat. The transistor revolution of the post-war years, and in particular the late 1950s, provided a massive boost to the consumer industry. Shop windows were filled with televisions, washing machines and affordable radio sets. Harry Epstein, always one to recognise a prime business opportunity, rented a shop in Great Charlotte Street, called it NEMS after the music-based offshoot of the furniture store, and filled it with electrical and domestic goods. This part of the shop was to be run by Brian's younger brother, Clive. There was also a record department, which was to be the responsibility of Brian. Such was Brian's enthusiasm and success in running the record department that Harry had to swiftly open a second NEM store, based over three floors at 12-14 to 14 Whitechapel. Brian took charge of this new Whitechapel operation and hired Peter Brown to manage the Great Charlotte Street shop. The shop was a huge success, boasting the finest record selection in the North. Brian insisted that all customers were addressed as Sir or Madam and ensured that nobody left dissatisfied. It was also policy of the store that if a record was not in stock then it would be ordered. Mr Brian, as he was addressed by the staff, was well liked by everybody and admired for his immaculate dress sense and polite manners. He set up precise measures for controlling the inventory and no record could ever be described as being impossible to get. Brian would continue to capitalise on his artistic flair and spend several hours a week designing and installing window displays that were just that little bit more special, that little bit more eye-catching. Brian was also celebrated for his uncanny skill at predicting what would sell and what would flop. It was incredibly accurate in most cases and it would get the stock ordering correct almost to the exact unit sold. So, we arrive at October the 28th,
1: 1961... ...and the legend
0: of Raymond Jones. As I said at the beginning of the show there has over the years been some dispute as to his existence. The story, according to Alistair Taylor, is that he was getting fed up with youngsters coming in and asking for the Beatles record. The record was called My Bonnie by Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers. The Beatles had recorded the single in Germany as backing group to Tony Sheridan, and so in order for Brown to import it from Germany, he had to place a minimum order of 25 records. Alistair Taylor placed the name Raymond Brown in the order book and bought one copy himself to cover it when they arrived. Brian then placed a handwritten sign in the window declaring Beatles record available here. And within about an hour, the other 24 had sold out. Well, according to the movie The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend so on our account what is generally perceived to have happened on that fateful day and leave it to you to decide the true event. 18-year-old Raymond Jones walked into the store that afternoon, approached the counter where Brian himself was serving and asked for a copy of My Bonnie by The Beatles. Brian politely informed Jones that he'd not heard of it, but he'd make some inquiries and wrote down The Beatles, My Bonnie, Check on Monday. Epstein could find no trace of the record through his usual suppliers and catalogues and over the next few days there were two more inquiries from other customers. When Raymond Jones returned to the shop he offered some further information stating that it was a German record. Brian, determined to uphold his policy of never letting the customer down rang Deutsche Grammophon in Hamburg. Brian was informed that they were distributing a record called My Bonnie but the group was listed as Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers. Apparently, the powers that be had renamed the Beatles as they were afraid that the word Beatles was too close to the German word Pedals which was slang for penis Convinced that they were on the right track Epstein and Taylor took a gamble and ordered the minimum quantity which was a box of 25 singles on arrival Raymond Jones collected his copy the handwritten sign went in the window and the remaining 24 copies flew off the shelves Brian's ear for a hit record led him to order a further 50 copies which sold within three days of their arrival. Brian Epstein always asserted that he knew nothing of the Beatles before the meeting with Raymond Jones on the 28th of October. Bill Harry, the founder and editor of Merseybeat magazine, begged to differ. Brian Epstein was a regular contributor to the magazine, offering his reviews of new singles in most editions, and Merseybeat had been informing their readers of the single since July the 20th, over three months before. The Liverpool scene was thriving at this time. Local celebrity and cavern DJ Bob Wooler had a copy of the single given to him by the Beatles and he was pushing it like crazy. Bill Harry was convinced that Brian would have been aware of the Beatles from Merseybeat, and that the Raymond Jones story was just a matter of convenient timing. Just three minutes' walk from Brian's store in Whitechapel stood the Cavern Club. Originally, the basement of a warehouse that had been a wartime air raid shelter, and then a wine cellar, followed by a storeroom for electrical equipment before opening as a jazz club in 1956. One bare light bulb above the entrance struggled to light the 18 stone steps that led down to the black painted vault, which was split into three separate areas by archways. Brian had heard that the Beatles were from Liverpool and that they played regularly at the cavern. So at lunchtime on November 9th 1961 with Alistair Taylor by his side, he strolled the 250 yards from his shop, dressed as usual in his trademark business suit, white shirt and dark tie. I could find no record of her being there that afternoon, but the regular cloakroom attendant, or the coat girl, was a young teenager by the name of Priscilla White. More on her in a little while. was nothing like any club Brian had been in before. The air was foul, damp and sour, with the smell of the cigarette smoke and the sweat, and the room was filled with the almost alien-like young people of Liverpool. Of course, Brian had been to pubs and clubs before, but never anything like this, and he came very close to leaving at one point. But eventually, the Beatles, with Pete Best on drums, for Ringo was yet to join the group, appeared on stage.
1: This was quite a new world, really, for me. Uh, I was amazed by this sort of dark, smoky, dank atmosphere, this beat music playing away. And um, the Beatles were then just four lads on that rather dimly lit stage, uh, somewhat ill-clad, and the presentation was well, left a little to be desired as far as I was concerned, because I'd been interested in the theatre and acting for a long time. But, amongst all that, something tremendous came over, and uh, I was immediately struck by their their, their music, their beat, and uh, their sense of humour, actually, on stage. And even afterwards, when I met them, I was struck again by their personal charm. And uh, it was there that, really, it all started.
0: Following that eventful and fateful November afternoon, Brian decided that he was going to manage the Beatles. A meeting was set up at NEMS on December the 3rd. Paul would arrive 30 minutes late, having popped home for a bath while the others were in a nearby pub. The conversation was polite and almost perfunctory. There was a seemingly cautious air to that first official meeting as Brian was fully aware of the status difference between him and the boys. Brian eventually broached the subject and asked if he could look after their affairs. The meeting ended with the Beatles simply saying that they'd go away and think about the idea. In reality, the Beatles had really been on the lookout for a manager. At this time, their gigs in Hamburg and other local concerts had been sourced by Liverpool promoter Alan Williams. Williams ran the Jacaranda coffee bar in the Blue Angel Club and he'd fallen out with them following a dispute over money owed to them during their appearances in Germany. Epstein would approach Williams stating that he wished to manage the Beatles. Alan Williams' reply was concise and to the point. They're a fantastic group but they'll let you down. My advice is don't touch them with a fucking barge pole. They have a track record of being late, especially that Paul McCartney. Williams could see that Epstein was obsessed by the group and that nothing could sway him. Contracts were drawn up and officially signed at Pete Best's mother's house on January 24th, 1962. Interestingly, what actually happened that day was that the four Beatles signed the contract with Alistair Taylor signing as a witness. Brian himself didn't actually sign the document. When Taylor questioned Epstein about his decision, Brian replied, Well, if they ever want to tear it up, they can. They can hold me, but I can't hold them. It appeared that in a way Brian Epstein had listened to Alan Williams' advice, and if anything went wrong, he could just walk away at any time. Incidentally, a second management contract was drawn up that October, running for five years, this time with Brian's signature on it. From the outset, Brian set himself two key immediate assignments One, to affirm himself on Merseyside where the Beatles were performing successfully in the clubs and ballrooms and two, to find a record company that might just be interested in the group Epstein confronted an extremely intimidating task in attempting to obtain a recording deal for the Beatles For sure, he knew how to sell records but he was totally oblivious to the process of creating them So, in typical Brian fashion, he thought, well, why not go for the biggest and the best EMI records? Brian's experience as a retailer had shown him that they were, as their advertising blurb, proclaimed the greatest recording organisation in the world. And they certainly had the clout when it came to the murky world of record distribution. Brian would use his role as successful and respected record dealer to get a foot in the office door of Ron White, the marketing manager of EMI in London. Brian played White a copy of My Bonnie, and although he found it hard to listen to what was essentially a backing group which had a solo singer up front, White agreed to at least take the record to the A&R department for a decision. Not long after the meeting with EMI, Brian managed to obtain a meeting with Decca. It was here that Brian proposed a revolutionary deal. He suggested that Decker make a record that would be licensed exclusively to him, possibly on something that could be called for instance Nim's Records. To sweeten the deal, Brian would personally buy 5,000 copies, costing just over £1,000, on the proviso that he be allowed to sell them exclusively wherever the Beatles were appearing. It was a gamble, and a very attractive one to the salesman at Decca, as it guaranteed a 5,000-copy sale instantly. In 1961, some singles didn't even get that many pressed in advance, let alone even sell that number in total. Over the next couple of weeks, Brian would strategically play EMI off against Decca, with a series of carefully worded letters and telephone calls. But eventually, EMI turned him down on the 18th of December. Brian had managed to extricate the group from a complicated licensing deal in Germany set up by Polydor Records, and so now all his hopes were now pinned on Decca. Decca eventually sent a and man Mike Smith, who witnessed the Beatles first hand in their natural environment, the Cavern. And so impressed was Smith that very soon after, he offered them a further audition to take place two weeks later on New Year's Day at Decca's West Hampstead Studios in London. All this time, Brian had continued to book appearances for the Beatles. His work at NEMS was suffering as he found himself devoting his time to the group, and Rita Harris, an employee at the NEMS store who Brian had dated occasionally, delivered an ultimatum that it was her or the Beatles. For Brian, it was a no-brainer. At Decca, the group played 15 songs. Mostly their versions of their favourite and more familiar standards, including Three Cool Cats, Till There Was You, and Your Feet's Too Big. Only three Lennon and McCartney originals were performed, Hello Little Girl, Like Dreamers Do, and Love of the Loved. The Beatles were far from happy with their performance that day, and this was not helped by the fact that they had to wait just over five weeks for a decision. That decision was what is now the famous quote from Dick Rowe, Decker's head of A&R, who said... Not to mince words, Mr. Epstein. We don't like your boy's sound. Groups are out. Four-piece groups with guitars particularly are finished.
1: Star Please don't ever make her blue Just tell her that you love her Make sure you're thinking of her hey. It's a sign it's wrong. We're crying, crying, waiting, waiting, hoping, hoping you come back. Well, maybe someday soon, things will change and you'll be mine. Crying.
0: Brian took the tape to prospective record labels Pi, Oriole, Columbia, HMV all of which said pretty much the same thing the fad now was for the solo singer people like Frank Ifield, Jimmy Justice, Helen Shapiro but this would only make Brian even more determined and at the same time he continued to get them bookings this time for more money than before it was also a time to change the wardrobe Out went the leather suits they bought in Hamburg, and in came shiny grey lounge suits with velvet collars, cloth coloured buttons and pencil-thin lapels. Yet, still the Beatles remained unknown outside of Liverpool and the surrounding area. And in April 1962, they returned to Hamburg for a seven-week gig at the Star Club. With the Beatles in Germany, Brian decided on one final push in London to try and see as many record companies that would be willing to meet with him. The Decker tapes were just that, reel-to-reel spools. For a small charge of £1, the HMV store in Oxford Street offered a service whereby it would transfer your tapes onto Acetate Record. It was here that Brian was given the name George Martin. George Martin was the head of A&R at Parlophone Records, a subsidiary of EMI, which at the time was best known for its comedy records featuring such people as Peter Sellers. An appointment was made to meet the very next day. An appointment, if truth be told, that if it didn't go well, Brian was almost ready to throw in the towel and admit defeat. George Martin liked what he heard. He was not overly excited, but let's just say he was interested. Martin agreed to offer the group a recording test in June following their return from Germany. This would only be a test, not a full-blown studio audition like the one that had not worked out for them at Decca. And it would be for a label that it would be fair to say was fairly low down in the pecking order. But it was something... Something that would give Brian the spark of hope that he needed at this point. And so, he sent a telegram to Hamburg which said, Congratulations boys, EMI request recording session. Please rehearse new material. The Beatles played a varied collection of tunes at the Abbey Road Studios on the 6th of June 1962. George Martin wanted to test them and eventually he chose Love Me Do as the potential A-side of their first single backed up by P.S. I Love You. But there was a catch. Right from the start, Martin had realised that Pete Best wasn't a good enough drummer to record and he insisted that when the recording took place, he would provide a session musician to take his place. Over that summer, Pete Best stayed with the band, oblivious to the deal made between Epstein and Martin. The others, however, were all fully aware, and on August 15th, Brian broke the news to Best, stating, The boys want you out of the group. They don't think you're a good enough drummer. One week later, Merseybeat broke the news in its latest issue that Pete Best had been replaced by Ringo Starr, formerly of Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. And that was it, the Fab Four was born. Although at the Abbey Road recording session on the 11th of September of Love Me Do, Ringo didn't play drums, as George Martin had provided Andy White as a replacement as promised, and he knew nothing of Ringo's drumming abilities on the 2nd of October a second contract was signed by Brian and the Beatles a thoroughly legal document this time witnessed by George and Paul's fathers Brian's share of the earnings was to be 25% and the agreement was to be in place for five years Love me do Love me do Love me do was released 2 days later. The band would continue to appear at numerous gigs appearing second on the bill to Little Richard at the New Brighton Tower. But it became apparent that EMI were not making any real effort to promote the single to the radio or to the press. Brian had been told that it would take sales of 10,000 copies to have a top 20 hit. So, that was the exact quantity he ordered from Parlophone. Of course, the record flew off the shelves in Liverpool and became number one in Mersey Beat's top 20, but things were painfully slow. Eventually, it got airplay on Radio Luxembourg and the Light programme, and then gradually, there were signs that something was happening. Love Me Do hit number 49 in Record Mirror's Top 100. Not long after, the new musical Express showed it at number 27. And finally, on the 13th of December 1962, the first Beatles single reached number 17 in the charts.
1: Love me too
0: Throughout this slow build-up, other things were gathering pace. Famous promoter Larry Parnes began to negotiate with Brian the details of a tour. George Martin helped Brian towards pushing the band's publishing rights not to some large American firm, but to Dick James, a former crooner from the 1930s. And even before Love Me Do had peaked at number 17 that December, the Beatles were due to record their second single Abbey Road on the 26th of November. Now, with George Martin and Dick James in his corner, Brian was ready to push the Beatles even further. A special company named Northern Songs was set up that exclusively published Lennon and McCartney compositions. And with their second single, Please Please Me, due for release in January '63, the Beatles returned begrudgingly to Hamburg for a two-week engagement at the Star Club that had been booked months before. Thank Your Lucky Stars was one of the most popular shows on UK TV in the early 60s. It appealed to its mainly teenage audience with its mix of top 20 hits performed, or more accurately, mimed by the artists in the studio and a panel of celebrities who would rate each song. That winter of 62-63 was the worst in Britain for nearly a 100 years, with snowfall lasting more than three months in places. And so on the 12th of January it was almost inevitable that with the Beatles making their first of several appearances on the show there would be a substantial audience to witness the debut of their second single Please Please Me And there it began Not full-blown Beatlemania as yet, but the bubbling undercurrent of something massive waiting to happen. Within five weeks of the TV performance, the single was at number two in Melody Maker's Top 20, and two weeks later, it reached the number one spot. But that was never going to be enough for Brian in 1963. Even while the Beatles had been recording their first two singles, Brian had signed up Jerry and the Pacemakers. They would go on to create history by becoming the first act to have three consecutive number ones with their first three singles. A feat that would go unmatched for 20 years until the advent of another Liverpool band, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Brian would also sign up Billy J. Cramer and the Dakotas, who in 1963 would go on to have three top five hit records, including the number one Bad to Me, written by Lennon and McCartney. Also added to Brian's growing stable of Merseyside talent was the group The Foremost, who had two top 20 hits in '63, and Scylla Black, formerly Priscilla White, the coat check girl from The Cavern, who would go on to have an incredible career in the recording industry and TV that would last for over 50 years until her death in 2015. Brian would work with George Martin on a grand campaign. With a number one hit single under their belts, they planned that the Beatles should release a single every three months and an album every six. NEMS Enterprise Limited was set up to contain Brian's business activities and his personal team of staff grew from three to ten, plus nine road managers. He no longer had to plead with proven entrepreneurs to book his acts; They were fighting each other to have them appear and it seemed that they were willing to pay almost any price. And still, the Beatles' train kept rolling on with no signs of stopping. At one point, three of Brian's acts occupied the top three positions in the charts. Jerry and the Pacemakers with I Like It, Billy J Kramer with Do You Want To Know A Secret, and the Beatles with From Me To You. The next three Beatles singles all hit the top of the charts, from me to you, she loves you and I want to hold your hand. Two albums were released in 1963, Please Please Me and With The Beatles. Brian Epstein's acts provided the soundtrack to that summer, which in the UK was also the summer of the Profumo affair. Brian organised three nationwide tours for the first half of the year, And whilst appearing as second on the bill, the Beatles would overshadow the headline acts such as Tommy Rowe, Chris Montez and Roy Orbison. October 13th, the Beatles were watched by an audience of 15 million as they appeared on Sunday night at the London Palladium. Late October, a five day tour of Sweden, swiftly followed by another six week tour of the UK. It was about this time that the phenomenon of Beatlemania was really born. And then, on November the 4th... Thank you.
1: For our last number, I'd like to ask your help. The people in the cheaper seats clap your hands. (laughs) And the rest of you, if you just rattle your jewellery.
0: At the Royal Command performance, the Beatles were ensured the royal seal of approval.
1: Thank you. We'd like to sing a song called Twist and Shout.
0: In order for Brian to fulfil his promise that the Beatles would be bigger than Elvis, only one more hurdle remained, and that was to conquer the United States. Next time, why don't you join me as I tell the continuing story of how Brian Epstein would battle not only his inner demons, but Imelda Marcos, and deal with claims that the Beatles were not just bigger than Elvis Presley, Jesus Christ Himself. See you next time for the concluding part of the Brian Epstein story. Thanks for listening. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Podcast, and check out our website at rainbowvalley.org. Send us your thoughts and feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com and you can also email me at that address and I'll send you a bonus mixtape episode featuring music relating to today's show. This has been a Sneaking Paws
1: production.